This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Interested in, 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 in this being a partisan issue. Yeah. I'm here as an advocate no, of the and, Constitution. And I appreciate that. And, and look, as I said, I think there's a solid argument here. But since I do a lot of pretending on TV, I'm happy to I, I'm happy to predict that there is no way that this U.S. Yeah. Supreme Court is going to declare that Donald Trump can't be on the ballot. We shall see. Corky Messner, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks, Appreciate Stan. It. Have a great night. We'll see you. Bye bye. That does it for us tonight. Banfield starts. Welcome to the start of a short work week because it's already Tuesday. I hope you had a great Labor Day. Hope you had some time off and, you know, didn't have to labor. Uh, so I did not think we were going to start the week with uh, maybe there'll be another Murdoch trial. I never thought I'd say that. I actually was pretty surprised at the verdict when I saw it. Didn't think it was going to happen. Didn't think he'd be guilty. Didn't think he'd get the life sentences he got for killing Paul and Maggie. Maybe I was right. I love saying that, <laughs> but let me tell you why. Uh, it turns out that there's a clerk who was doing a lot of this when she maybe should have been doing that. And Murdoch's lawyers held a press conference today and just kind of dropped a whole lot of bombshells about stuff that a court clerk probably shouldn't have done if she did it. So here's what it amounts to. They say the bar has been met uh, to throw out that verdict. And maybe start again if that's what the prosecutors want to do. Throw out the verdict anyway, and then it's up to y'all. You want to try them again, that's up to y'all. But throw out that verdict because that verdict was swayed by a court clerk who was doing business that shouldn't have been doing with the jury. I'm going to lay it all out for you. I'm going to read the allegations, exactly the, the things that, that, that the lawyers say this clerk did are bonkers. I never heard of this in a case before. I almost think it's so crazy it couldn't have happened. However, they asked the jurors, and the jurors, like, swore on an affidavit that that stuff was true. So this is really cool. I mean, this stuff is, uh, look, if you love court cases and courtrooms and trials and stuff like me, this is like, you know, this is like crack. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, all right, so we're going to go over all that in a minute, but I want you to hear something about what the lawyers said today because they called a press conference. They've been working a lot throughout this summer when the rest of us were suntanning and swimming. Uh, this is what they said they've been working on and what they found. I can assure you, when we considered what factors and what we should and should not do and considered whether he should take the stand, we never considered the likelihood, as reported to us by the jurors, that the clerk of court would go in to the sanctity of the jury room before he testified and tell the jurors, don't be fooled by his testimony, watch out for his body language. What? <laughs> like, these are the allegations that the court clerk 
went into the jury room and told them all sorts of stuff about me hey, guilty. Yeah, let's make this go away. Let's hurry up. Let's get this show on the road. Okay, it's crazy. I'm going to, again, I'm going to tell you everything, read you the exact allegations in just a moment. So don't go anywhere. You really have to hear this stuff. Can't make it up. And then this other story, uh, not funny, mm, not even a way to put a cute spin on it. No. The police and the, the sheriffs and the authorities who've been tracking the BTK killer, serial killer, bind, torture, kill, Dennis Rader, they have tried a new tactic. Uh, they think that he may be responsible for some cold cases, and they've been working away at it for quite a long time, but now they are doing something that involves us. And when I say us, I mean you and me. Um, they are releasing sketches that that monster did, that he drew, that they seized from him in 2005 when they arrested him, and they have kept it in a vault for a long time. Now they're releasing these sketches, and there's a reason they're releasing them. So when I show them to you, I want, first of all, to just warn you, they're sketches, so uh, it's not a picture of something awful, but it is a depiction and they think it's a real depiction of torture and murder of uh, women. So it's uncomfortable to, to look at the sketches. Uh, but the reason that they want you to see the sketches, um, and I will show you the ones in particular in a moment, is that they think you might recognize some of the buildings. Because now they are really on to something in three states. Buildings where he may have killed and left and buried victims. And they think they might know the identity in one of the sketches. I'm going to show you the sketches. I'm going to give you another warning. Because, again, they're sketches, but, God, if they're real, it's so upsetting to think what these girls went through at his hands. And so that's coming in a moment. Uh, but they really need your help. So uh, even if you plan to do something else during this program, please come back for that and just take a look at the sketches, especially if you're in, you know, uh, these three states that I'm going to outline in a moment. I, I really need you to just take a look and see if anything in these sketches looks familiar to you. Okay. The other thing that we are looking at that we figured over the Labor Day weekend wouldn't be a story anymore. Oh, and it is. Uh, manhunt in Pennsylvania. Uh, the guy who busted out of jail after being sentenced to life for murder, and not just any murder, for stabbing his ex-girlfriend 39 times in front of her children. There's that. Uh, he was all set to be shipped off to the pen, and instead he broke out of jail. And that was six days ago. So, again, I didn't think we were going to be having this conversation. I didn't think he'd make it six days. He's a little fella. He's like five feet. Um, but he did. He's been out there, and no one's been able to capture him, except surveillance cameras. He was captured on surveillance cameras again last night. And he's got a few new things since busting out. Because when you bust out, you don't have a lot, right? You're in the prison garb. Now, he got himself a new bag. He got himself a new backpack. A new hoodie. And that helicopter has something very special in it. And it has to do with his mother. Ah, that's coming up all in just a moment. Let's start with Alex Murdoch. All the stories that we've been telling you ever since he was locked away for life have just been kind of small potatoes, right? And he did this in jail and got this privilege revoked and blah, blah, blah. And now it's not so small. Because if what his lawyers are saying is true, Houston, we got a problem. Uh, South Carolina, actually, you got a problem because the allegations that are being made against the, the clerk of the court in this trial are extraordinary. And the weirdest part is that they come from her, her, own, her own authorship. She wrote a book, self-published, and in it, she just dropped a whole lot of bombshells 
that really incriminate her. I don't know why she would have done it, but she done it. And so now his lawyers said, well, we're going to have to speak to those jurors to see if what she's written is true. And daggum, it is according to the jurors. And they signed their names to an affidavit. Serious stuff. They said, not only is what she wrote in that Doors of Justice book true, we're going to sign our names under oath. We're going to sign an affidavit and say, these are the things she did. And it amounts to foul, you know, allegations of jury tampering. Okay, so here's, here's what the, the team alleges. You ready? That she advised the jury not to believe Murdoch's testimony and other evidence that was brought in by the defense. Big. That she pressured the jury to reach a quick, guilty verdict. Ouch. And also that she misrepresented information to the actual judge <laughs> presiding over the case uh, in an effort to get one of the jurors booted. Not good. So there's allegations the jurors were discussing the case frequently during breaks. Not allowed to do that. I want to bring in our uh, senior national correspondent, Brian Enton, who covered this case start to finish. Uh, Brian, this is so enormous. Like half of me believes that it's hyperbolic if it were not for signed affidavits by these jurors themselves saying, yep, what she said is true. Take me from there. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Two things that you brought up that I think are important that a lot of people aren't talking about. Number one, that she is an elected official, that she was elected to do this job and be professional. And if you read her book, I mean, she talks about going to cocktail parties with reporters during the trial and guessing about the verdict and how excited she was to go to New York and be on the Today Show and ride in the black suburban. And then all of these allegations now in the sworn affidavit Uh, that she was talking to the jurors during the trial and basically telling them that she believed uh, that Alec Murdoch uh, was guilty and telling them not to believe his testimony. And it's interesting, actually, because we have learned that the defense attorneys were trying to interview these jurors for a long time, driving down all the dirt roads in the backwoods areas of South Carolina, uh, trying to talk to these jurors. They didn't want to talk, but when the book came out and they read Her book, it upset the jurors, we are told, what she wrote in the book. And that is what caused them to come forward and decide uh, to to talk to the defense attorney. So that's Rebecca Hill. And uh, again, that's self-published. She just put it out there. Nobody put it out in her name. She did it, wrote all those things. Is, Is she responding to this? Is she denying what she wrote or what they're saying? Uh, it's kind of hard to deny what you, you, you put down in a book yourself, right? Yeah, she's saying absolutely nothing right now. Uh, The minute that these allegations surfaced this morning, we kind of had a feeling they were coming last night that had something to do with the clerk. Uh, We called the office, the clerk's office in Colleton County, and immediate no comment. We've learned this afternoon that she was meeting with a legal team, uh, that there may be a statement that's coming out at some point soon. There has been no statement so far. Um, You see her picture there. Uh, So at at some point, she's obviously going to have to talk again. She's an elected official. I mean, she reports to the people. She works in the courthouse. She's very well known in that community. Um, So she's going to have to come out and and explain some of this. Has anybody sort of started the rumblings about uh, charges that she could face if any of these allegations are true? So that's the other big component of this. Of course, the lawyers for for Murdoch, they want a second trial, uh, but they have also made very clear they want an investigation, even a federal investigation. They don't want SLED. 
uh, the law enforcement division in the state to investigate this. They say they're way too tied to the case. They want someone else to come in and investigate. And I asked the lawyers uh, flat out at the press conference, um, do you want criminal charges? Is that what you're after? Uh, and they said no comment. Well, yes, okay. So the big, the big um, press conference was today with his attorneys spelling out in yeah. detail... In your estimation, having covered the trial and knowing just how serious, you know, much of that evidence was, what do you think is the most significant allegation in these two attorneys, you know, I mean, listen, there's a lot. There's a lot to choose from. But what, what did they at least or what did, what's lot. the common thought about the most serious allegation uh, that, that could lead to a trial being, you know, the trial result being tossed out? Yeah, I mean, I jotted some of these things down um, that she told jurors not to be fooled, not to be fooled. And again, this isn't a sworn affidavit. This isn't just the lawyer saying it uh, by Murdoch's, Murdoch's testimony. I mean, you can't go in and say that to a juror or to jurors after the defendant testifies. Uh, told jurors that their deliberations should not take long, basically trying to keep things moving. This is also interesting and hasn't gotten a lot of attention. She allowed the jurors to go out on smoke breaks during the entire trial. They got to have smoke breaks. There were six smokers on the jury. During the deliberations, she said no smoke breaks, which... You know, if you're a smoker, that's a big deal, especially during the stress of a deliberation. Again, the defense is trying to sort of say that she was trying to move things along. I talked to Joe McCullough. He is the lawyer who is representing two of the jurors who gave the sworn affidavits. He didn't want to get into too much detail, but but said, look, like it took a lot for these jurors to come forward and talk to the defense. I mean, they're not coming out and saying that they don't think Alec Murdoch is guilty, uh, but but they're upset about this clerk. Um, and they felt like it was the right thing to participate with with this defense investigation and basically just tell the story of what happened behind closed doors. And you know what? Jurors never get enough singing. They are unsung heroes. And for them to do this after they've already done their service to this country, they could be done with the whole mess. They they were this was a lot for them, yeah. a lot. It was very difficult testimony. So for them to come forward and say, look, we, we have to speak. I think it's a big deal. Hey, Brian Anton, thank you for this. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Ash. Okay, I want to bring in David Schoen. He specializes in criminal defense and civil rights law, litigating in more than a dozen states, also represented former President Trump. I am so glad that you're here with me. Because the first thing I thought of was, oh, you never reach the bar to get your trial result thrown out. That's like a, that's a pipe dream everybody has when they get a guilty verdict. This one, I feel like, like I'm, you're the lawyer, but I feel like this is like a no-brainer. I think you're 100% right. I think Brian really hit on the highlights. But beyond all of that, remember, they had a site visit in this case. They visited the site of the murder. And during that visit, or allegedly, this clerk met with the foreperson again privately, with whom she met many times privately, and then forbade the other jurors from asking what their conversations were about, and apparently made the comment during the site visit that this, the site visit proves that Murdoch's got to be lying. Oh, so let's just say for a second, and I'll get to all the nitty-gritty, but... Let's just say that the jury foreperson and this clerk became pals. And during breaks, they were having a chat about nail salons. Is that still inappropriate that they were even meeting at all, even if they had nothing to do with talking about the case? That would be inappropriate. But there are cases from South Carolina, State versus Green is a Supreme Court case from recently, South Carolina, in which they said, if it's that kind of conversation, something not about the subject matter of the case, 
then it may be okay. This is clearly about the subject matter of the case. As you said in your monologue, you've never heard of anything like this. I've never heard of anything like this. It's outrageous. The burden has shifted now to the prosecution after these affidavits to prove harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. They, they have to show that there's no reasonable possibility that there were, the jurors were influenced. Right. Oh, so that, I'm glad you did that. And, and I know there's a graphic up on the screen right now. I'm going to get to that in a minute. I don't want to cloud this next question. It, it's like, I'm not a lawyer. I did a law fellowship, but I don't know how you guys remember all these things. But as I understand this one, the first bar you have to meet is, was the information that you're presenting in your motion to have this trial thrown out, was it something that could not have been discovered during the trial itself? No. And the second prong is, could it actually have affected the outcome of the trial? And those are the only two prongs that need to be met in order for the judge to say, yes, this trial result does need to be tossed out. Am I missing something? Not at all. Great points. The first one's very interesting in this case. This came up during the course of the trial. It came up. There'd been possibly some improper conduct by a juror and the clerk learned about it. And according to their allegations, lied to the court about a Facebook post. So this there was some reason to believe there's monkey business going on with the clerk during the trial. I think now under South Carolina law, uh, they have to have what's called a Remmer hearing, a famous United States Supreme Court case from 1954. Bring in the jurors and hear their testimony. There's a rule, Federal Rule of Evidence 606B. South Carolina has the same rule. Ordinarily, we don't let jurors testify. We don't let them put in their mental processes and all that. The exception is if their testimony is about the improper influence of a third party. This is classic for that. And again, the burden has shifted now. There's a three-part test, actually. The, all the defendant has to show in this case is that either the conduct was intended to influence the juror or actually influenced it, or that the judge finds that it was probable that this would have influenced a juror. And here you have to show, the, the prosecution is going to have to show, harmless beyond a reasonable doubt, that this could not have influenced a juror. It's impossible. Got to be a new trial. It's also stinky optics. Yeah, you know? And if we're terrible. supposed to trust you know, our, our system of jurisprudence, you can't have stinky optics. So, but let me go over a couple things. So about Rebecca Hill's, the allegations against her, and the fact that she tried to sway the jury not to believe the defense's case. Juror 741, uh, Hill told us not to be fooled by Murdoch's defense. Juror number 630, before he testified, Hill told us to watch him closely. Look at his actions. Look at his movements. Okay, maybe that on its own isn't a big deal. But here's something about the meetings that you talked about, that the juror, the foreperson, was meeting with the clerk. Juror 630 said... Hill told other jurors that they couldn't ask what the conversations were about. Juror 741, the foreperson never shared logistical information after those secret meetings. And juror 630 also said the foreperson later told other jurors that Murdoch, Murdoch was, quote, crying on cue. Okay, and then about trying to push them to reach a verdict quickly. Juror 630, uh, under the affidavit, sworn and said, Hill told us repeatedly, quote, this shouldn't take long. Juror 741, if deliberations went past 11 p.m., they'd have to go to a hotel for the night, even though they didn't pack a bag. Juror number 630, six of the jurors were smokers, and they were told no smoke breaks until they reached a verdict, even though they had them through the trial. And then um, about the, the two walking around together at Moselle, the, the clerk and the juror foreperson, uh, Rebecca Hill wrote this in the book. While the jurors viewed the Moselle property, we could all... We all could hear and see that Alex's story was impossible. Some of us, either from the courthouse, law enforcement, or jury at Moselle, had an epiphany and shared our thoughts with our eyes. At that moment, many of us standing there knew, I knew, and they knew, that Alex 
was guilty. So if you share a thought with your eyes, is that something that can be construed as communicating with jurors and sharing that everyone's guilty while you're, before you've even gotten to deliberations? Yeah, S- slam dunk. Almost any one of those quotes that you picked would result in a new trial. Maybe not that you're going to be here all night sort of thing, and then you're going to have to go to a hotel. That's similar to another case in which a bailiff told them they would get an Allen charge if they didn't come to conclusion, and that one wasn't overturned. That's the dynamite charge. Exactly. Go back there, do it again, work harder. Yeah, come to a yeah, verdict. Come you know. to a verdict. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's more procedural. On substance, half, almost everything you said demands a new trial in this case. I'd bet on it. So, okay, so we're there with you, but can you just tell me real quickly, are they going to look at all of her other cases now? They may well do that. And she may be prosecuted for contempt. She may be prosecuted for obstruction of justice for this jury tampering. Holy Dinah, David, that's a lot. Okay, so you're going to have to come back as we continue to see where these chips fall. Thank you for coming in. Nice to see you in person. Nice to see you. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, folks, still to come, police have um, released some pretty sickening sketches that were drawn by BTK himself. Yeah, Dennis Rader's artwork. Um, The pictures are of girls bound and gagged with terrified looks in their eyes. The identities of most of them are a mystery, but one of them actually may now be known to the police. Why the police want you and your help. They want you to look at the sketches. So how you can help, that is coming up next. We have the sketches for you too in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Okay, so uh, because I do a show about a lot of murder, um, and mystery, I uh, often give warnings because of our subject matter. So here you go again. Uh, if you have children, please move them into another room or do something. And the volume's not going to be enough here. Uh, I'm going to show pictures, so turning the volume down is not going to help. I'm going to show pictures. They are sketches. I wouldn't normally give a graphic warning on sketches, but these are really uncomfortable because they are sketches drawn by Dennis Rader, the bind, torture, kill, serial killer. And they are sketches of his murders as he was torturing girls. I'm going to explain to you each one, but in the meantime, I want you to know why they're going on television. Because the police want you to look at them. They want someone out there, maybe it's you, uh, to recognize some detail in the picture, likely of the barns. Barns in the background. These, These girls were all held in barns on farms. And so you might recognize some unique features in these pictures. Okay, I'm going to start with the first picture of the three, the series of three. It is a uh, young woman bound and gagged and terrified. Um, And you can see the wood in the background. And so as you look at that picture, as uncomfortable as it is, that is a person and it is possibly a cold case that could be solved if you recognize anything about the wood in the background of that barn. Okay. The second sketch is also um, a woman in a barn, but this time with a noose around her neck. She's in a red, red dress, maybe just a red shirt. It's so short. Um, and again, that wood in the background. 
Police believe that is barnwood. They believe that that may have some representation. I know it is really tricky. I know it looks pretty much like everything, but is there anything about that that just strikes you? Police are hoping you will, and they've released this because of that. In the third picture, again, it is a barn, um, and again, there is a noose, and again, it is a dress that is very short. Maybe it's only a shirt, but it is a, a young girl bound, gagged, hands behind um, her back, sitting on a bale of hay. And again, it's a barn. They think they might know who this person is, though. They're saying it, it is possible. It is a woman from southeast Kansas. She went missing in 1991. They are feverishly trying to solve this case. They're not releasing the name because they've been working with the families and they're just not ready for that. Um, But I'll tell you what, one of the things they do believe is that a case from uh, a young girl named Cynthia Kinney, 1976, uh, they believe that she was killed in a barn and buried in a barn. And they think that because they got an anonymous call months after Kinney disappeared And the call, the person on the call said that Cynthia's body could be found in a barn along the Oklahoma-Kansas border. So this is why it's so critical to look at those pictures. I want to bring in Dr. Scott Bond, criminologist, professor, and author of Why We Love Serial Killers. It includes exclusive information on his correspondence with Dennis Rader. So Dr. Bond, wow, these pictures. Um, There's so many questions I have for you, but... about the the effort that the police are putting out there to the public to look at the pictures and see if they recognize anything. But is there something you see in the pictures that the rest of us wouldn't? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on again, Ashley. And um, Raider is a prolific uh, artist, and he's, he's actually fairly talented. And I started corresponding with him in 2010, and he would send me many, many drawings. And they represent his fantasies. This is his way of, of reliving um, his, his killings. It's his way of thinking about potentially future killings. These, these drawings are actually not new. The law enforcement has had them since 2005 when they first apprehended him. And the reason they're releasing them now is they no longer believe that they just represent his fantasy life, but may in fact actually be crime scenes. And that's why they're, they're um, asking for the, for the public's help. Um, the reason that he does this once again is he wants to chronicle his work. He sees his work as like this, somehow this sick, um, uh, great uh, body of, of work that needs to be recognized and remembered by humanity. And, and what it really is, is he's shooting himself in the foot because he's providing evidence that could potentially lead to, you know, solving these additional cold cases. But he can't help it. He needs to do it for his, um, for his own ego and his own narcissism. And um, I've always believed that there were additional victims out there. Um, and I'm so glad now that, that finally there's been some movement here and hope Hopefully there will be some closure in uh, not too long a time. So I've always thought that he wasn't very smart. I think he thinks he's brilliant. <laughs> but you know, we weren't very good at crime solving you know, back 20 years ago. We were good, but not as good as we are now. Um, and so they, there were a lot of things he did along the way, you know, perilously close to his family in the basement with his daughter playing hide and seek in these areas. I mean, really, really tempting fate in churches, reenacting his crimes in churches and on scout trips. And I wonder about the details in some of these pictures. And I'm going to ask our control room to put up the picture of the black and white uh, barn with a silo uh, nearby. It doesn't have a victim in it. But 
Why do you think he would leave so many breadcrumbs and details behind uh, if they weren't if they weren't true? I mean, why would he just throw anything out there and just you know taunt for no reason? Well, the the reason for that is because he is the ultimate gamesman. It's all cat and mouse. I mean, if, if you're familiar with his history, he played cat and mouse with law enforcement for years, sending them little clues and and um, uh, ciphers and puzzles. And, and uh, this is this is gamesmanship on, on his part. Now, again, I think for a number of years, the law enforcement was not sure whether these drawings were, in fact, just out of his fantasies or whether they really are crime scenes. And um, I'm of the believer that they, in fact, are crime scenes. Mm-hmm. He's very literal. He he thinks he's smarter than the average bear, to borrow from, you know, Yogi, uh, Yogi Bear. Um, and he thinks that he just won't get caught. And, um, and so, therefore, he doesn't see this as being um, foolish or, or naive. He just thinks he's so above it all that no one will ever possibly connect the dots. And that was his undoing, of course, with the floppy disk. If you're familiar with, you know, how he was caught by the uh, floppy disk that had his name on it that he sent to law enforcement. Well, so, let's hope his missteps um, lead to some resolution, Dr. Bond, absolutely. for these families, because, oh, they have suffered so much. Um, Dr. Bond, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. We'll have you back. All right. Thank you. All right. Still to come, folks, six days. And a dangerous escape killer is somewhere out there in Pennsylvania. And he's growing more desperate with every single hour that passes. And while they cannot seem to capture him, cameras certainly have. After the break, what new things he's picked up since busting out of jail and how the cops have enlisted his own mommy to help track him down. That is all next. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo GOAT G-O-A-T Acronym Stands for Greatest of All Time As in Spaghetti Sandwiches for Dinner They're my fave Dad You're the GOAT You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same Visit AdoptUSKids.org Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Adopt U.S. Kids and the Ad Council At the Veterans Health Administration, we provide life-changing care to over 9 million veterans across more than 1,200 facilities nationwide. Our hands are busy, competent, skilled, healing, helping, and friendly. A place where diverse teams come together hand-in-hand to provide full patient-centered care and where even robots lend a hand. Join hands with us. Learn more at vacareers.va.gov. When it comes to a gun suicide attempt, all it takes is a moment. Heather and I had an argument just like any other couple. I was lost. I had snapped. I had a gun, and I was going to take my own life. Heather helped me realize that there was still a life to live for the better of myself, my family. My weapon is now safely put away. A moment of crisis can happen to anyone. Store your guns, locked, unloaded, and away from ammo. Hear more safe stories at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by Brady and the Ad Council. 
A message from Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous. I came to Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous overweight and depressed. I was dieting, binging, stealing food, and lying about it for years. For help, call 781-932-6300 or visit foodaddicts.org. I knew I had a weight problem. I didn't know I was addicted to food. The FA program gave me a healthy body. I'm free from obsessing about my weight or food. Call FA 781-932-6300 or visit us on our website at foodaddicts.org. A lot can happen in six seconds. A rodeo ride, a dramatic basketball win, and the world record holder can solve a Rubik's Cube. Six seconds is how long it takes for an 18-wheeler traveling at a safe speed to come to a complete stop. And in those six seconds, that truck will travel the length of two football fields. So please, give them room. Never cut in front of a large truck for any reason. Our roads, our responsibility. Learn more at sharetheroadsafely.gov. You're listening to Banfield on News Nation. To find News Nation on your screen, go to joinnn.com. I see you finally got a new helmet. I did. Bought it cheap online. <laughs> Follow me. We'll turn off here. I'm right behind you. Watch the cars. They can be crazy. Teddy! No! Are you okay? Somebody do something! Was this young man hit by a car? Yes, and his helmet is smashed. It's a brand new helmet. It's probably a fake. Fakes cause real harm. You're smart. Buy smart. Brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council and the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Hello, I'm Scott Strauss. On 9-11, I was a New York City police officer assigned to finding survivors buried under the rubble of the World Trade Center. Those were difficult days. But what kept me going was seeing the way Americans joined together in unity. It didn't matter if you were a Democrat or a Republican or anything else. For 9-11 this year, now a national day of service, let's rekindle that spirit of unity by doing good deeds. Visit 911day.org to learn more. Where can the skills you learn with ham radio take you? Amateur radio, often called ham radio, is the place where today's engineers got their start. Ham radio is more popular than ever before. With hands-on training in electronics, engineering, and digital communications, modern hams interface computers and radios in entirely new ways. Ham radio in the 21st century can take you around the world or into a whole new career. Learn more. Go to ARRL.org. Join us. stabbed his ex-girlfriend 38 times. That is unbelievable. And he did it in front of her little kids. And the reason he did it was because she found out he was wanted for murder in his home country of Brazil. Shame on her. Anyway, um, he got his, you know. He was convicted of it. Sentenced to life in prison, bah, bye, until he broke out of prison. Jail. He hadn't even made it to prison. He broke out on Thursday, and he has been on the run ever since. And let me tell you something about guys on the run who are facing life behind bars. They have nothing to lose. They got nothing to lose. They will kill you with their bare hands to stay out of the hooskow, right? And they also need stuff. They need food. They need clothes. They need stuff. They need weapons. The only place you can get stuff is usually by hurting someone to take their stuff, breaking into their homes while they're probably there, and taking it. That's what we kind of think this guy might have done. His name is Danilo Cavalcante, and he escaped from the Chester County Jail Thursday. 
somehow, after escaping, they got these pictures, and he's wearing, you know, prison uh, denim, the white T-shirt. But later, as in last night, they caught him on surveillance, I, like a trail at a botanical garden. And he had some new things. He had a backpack that he didn't have when he came out of prison, uh, jail. He had a duffel bag, and he had a nice, warm, new hoodie. These are the pictures. Take a good look. This is him on the Longwood Botanical Gardens Trail last night. It's outside the search perimeter. Perimeter is about two miles in radius from the, from the jail. That man is bad to the core. Poison. And you watch it because he will kill. He's happy to do it in front of little kids if he needs something to keep on the run. So this manhunt is important. That's why the police decided to call his mom and have her broadcasting from a helicopter. Give yourself up. I'm not kidding. This is what it looked like. hard to hear it, but that's in Portuguese because that's his native tongue from Brazil, and she's begging him to give himself up. Seth Ferrante knows what it's like being on the run because he was once on the U.S. Marshal's top 15 most wanted list for federal drug trafficking. He evaded authorities for two years before they got him, served two decades in prison, and he's now the director of the Amazon film Dope Men, America's first drug cartel. It's great to have you on the show again, Seth. What is he thinking right about now? What is going through his mind? Because you were there. Yeah, I think at this point, um, he, he's running on pure adrenaline. I mean, he's got to be super desperate, you know, super paranoid. I mean, probably, like you said, willing to do anything, you know, because in his mind, his whole thing is, I'm trying to escape. I'm trying to get out of here. But like you said, he has to break into people's houses. He needs clothes. He needs food. If he wants to get out of that area, he needs money. But at the same time, I mean, from what I read, this is like a 200-acre area, you know, that he's kind of moving around in. So, you know, I think a lot of luck right now, you know, pure adrenaline. But, um, I mean, there's like 200, 250 law enforcement officers out there. If he stays in that area, they're going to find him because all it takes is one mistake from him. He is a small guy, by the way. And, and like when I say small, I mean tiny. He's five feet tall, 120 pounds. Um, not going to suggest that that's not someone who can take care of themselves, but it's a little trickier, uh, especially if you're in hand-to-hand combat. Does that suggest to you that that guy has no shot unless he's armed, so therefore he will be armed, whatever it takes? I, I would say... I mean, a small dude like that, like, he can hide good. You know, he can, he can move around. So I, I think he's a hiding dude. But, yeah, definitely if he has a weapon, he's going to use it. I mean, we don't know if he has a weapon or not. Hopefully he doesn't. You know, but I'm sure if he has a weapon, he will use it. But, you know, someone that small, I think, you know, especially in, like, a botanical garden type situation, you can probably move quiet, hide. I mean, that's how else would he be surviving in that small of an area? If, but, you know, so far. Can I ask you, look, six days is six days, and I, I don't know what it's like. You did this for two years. If you had heard your mother from up above broadcasting out of a helicopter, sweetie, please give yourself up, would that have had a lick of an effect on you? Yeah, it's, it's going to be a wave of emotion. It, it, it's going to be an impact. But, I mean, this dude, he has one thing on his mind right now, escape. 
So I'm sure it probably hit him, but you know, if he's so focused on his escape and he just keeps moving and moving, you know, even in that small area, you know, to avoid people, you know, that's the only thing he's thinking of. So, you know, it probably caused a wave of emotion though, but though, you know, then he just pushed on, you know, that's, I, I was, I was, I was in situations like that. You just got to push on, you know, and overcome it, or, you know, you're going to get caught. That's why they're using that against him in, in the first place. Well, they've closed a couple of school districts down there because they're so fearful of how dangerous he is. Um, it's really serious stuff. Seth, I'm going to keep you on speed dial on this one because day six and we're just, you know, another hour and a bit away from day seven. So thanks for doing this. All right, thank you. It was my pleasure, Ashley. Seth Ferrante again uh, joining us. He knows this business, so like I said, we're going to talk to him again. Uh, coming up next, did the Long Island serial killer strike far away from Gilgo Beach, like really, really, really far away in another state? Police all the way down in South Carolina are now drawing a clearer line between a missing woman and that guy, Rex Hewerman, locked up and charged with four Gilgo Beach murders. And guess who just joined the investigation? that may tie him to the South Carolina case. Got the details next. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. So look out, South Carolina, because you might be next. When I say that, I mean you might be the next person to have to deal with the Long Island serial killer's nightmare. South Carolina, I'm not kidding. All summer long, we've been dealing with, like, drip, 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 information about Gilgo Beach, Long Island, New York story, until now it's not. Now it's also a South Carolina story, because now... The FBI is involved with the South Carolina possibilities, specifically one particular missing person in South Carolina. She disappeared six years ago, Julia Ann Bean. And her daughter, after seeing this big story up in New York, said, hold it. That guy they arrested, that suspected serial killer from Long Island, the one who dumped the bodies on Gilgo Beach, that guy was with my mom before I never saw her again. And then that missing woman's friend looked at these pictures of all the victims on Gilgo Beach and said, dear God, that looks like my friend Julia. All of them share the same traits. They all look the same, petite, white women who are sex workers. This is Heidi Kovas, this poor young woman's missing, like Julia Ann Bean, the missing woman's friend. Heidi Kovas, just a couple of weeks ago when we spoke to her, take a listen. We as adults can kind of put two and two together, but there is still a slim chance 
that she could be alive and she could possibly be on that property in that house. There could be other women in there. You know, I don't understand why we're not going in there, but you know, you got to leave it to the police to do what they got to do. So why South Carolina? Why? Because Rex Hewerman, the suspect in the Long Island serial killings, has properties down there. And again, they seem like they're real similar in these cases. I want to bring in Mike King. He's a retired homicide detective, a police task force commander, 28 years on the job. He hosts the Profiling Evil podcast and YouTube channel. And also he's the author of Deceived, an investigative memoir of the Zion Society cult. Okay, Mike, um, Heidi Kovas really thinks that this is the real deal. She also thinks that her friend who went missing six years ago could still be alive. I know we never want to give up hope, but what are the chances of that? You know, you got to keep trying and you can't give up hope. And frankly, to me, Ashley, this is pretty encouraging news on a couple of fronts. I, I mean, first, the idea that investigators might be linking together some cases, more cases to Hearman potentially, and that those cases in some wacky form or fashion are somehow corroborating each other. It might be just the location, might be the fact that Hearman traveled down there, but it gives some hope and, frankly, needs to be excluded if it isn't the thing. But these serial cases are so difficult and painstaking to go through these investigations. you got to look at all of the victims and try to figure out why did this individual become a victim. And you need to evaluate crime scenes and evaluate the kind of the sophistication level, if if there really is one, of the predator. And that helps you bring them together. Well, in that, do you think the notion that the FBI is now formally involved, like the sheriffs went to the FBI and said, bring it, bring it in. And and when local law enforcement reaches out to the FBI, they, they respond. What will that do for this investigation, the fact that the FBI is now part of it? Well, I, I think having the resources of the federal government on their side is a really big deal for the investigation. Not only does it add more law enforcement officers to help in the investigative process, but it brings agents that might be experts in crime scene analysis, or it may bring laboratory resources to the to the table. And of course, it's going to bring uh, maybe a little more intimately behavioral experts who can examine the evidence compared to all of the other traditional forms of evidence. Because sometimes in these cases, what we fail to do when we're looking at forensics and, and eyewitness accounts and, and maybe admissions or confessions is we forget about the behavioral evidence and the part that it plays in helping exclude or maybe focus a little more directly on suspects. Mike, Julia Bean's daughter says that she swears, now that she's seen Rex Hurman's picture all over the news as the Gilgo Beach suspected serial killer, she swears that was the guy she last saw her mother with headed to a nail salon. She swears it was his vehicle as well. How good is that six-year-old memory from a daughter, um, given that the FBI and local investigators would need so much more to actually put together charges and make them stick? You know, our mindset is that an eyewitness is the best thing in reality in these criminal cases. Sometimes it's one of the most difficult forms of evidence to kind of process because our our memories, our, our uh, personal biases, 
the passage of time, maybe our need to really want to solve something can really impact the value of our testimony. So the thing that's going to be important, I think, with this young child, now adult, is, um, or, or at least older, is that um, we're now going to have to look at what was talked about when she was there seven years ago, and uh, is it relevant or is she coming sure. up with ideas because of what's going on here? Maybe. You know, she was. Uh, it was her graduation, so maybe she was around 18 years old. She might be around 24 uh, years old now, but certainly the story is not over. Um, Mike, as always, thank you for your perspective and your wisdom. Thanks, Ashley. We'll see you again soon, I hope. Still to come, a um, multi-million dollar mansion with meticulous landscaping and a showpiece kind of lighting setup. It was really the jewel of the historic Detroit neighborhood. But nestled high up in that attic, behind those three windows, in the darkened corners, was the body of its proud owner. A beloved neurosurgeon wrapped up and stashed away, likely by whomever killed him and did not want him found. That was five months ago. And still no arrests, still no motive, until now. After the break, what police are saying about a suspected killer they are now tracking. We have it for you next. It's been about five months since Dr. Devin Hoover was found murdered and stashed in the attic of his very own multi-million dollar mansion in a historic Detroit neighborhood. The police had no suspects, and they've said little about motive until now. Dr. Hoover was found wrapped in a plastic sheet wearing nothing but a sock. His killer had stuffed his body into a crawl space and covered it with a comforter and a rug. He'd been shot in the head twice, then dragged face down up to the attic. Police say they've always believed that he knew his assailant, that it was not a random act, and now they say they finally have a suspect in mind and are confident that they're going to bring Hoover's family some justice. But before they tell us who they're tracking, they say they need a little more time to work with prosecutors. And then they say they promise us they're going to make a formal announcement before the snow hits the ground. And this is important because this man was beloved in his neighborhood, opening up that beautiful mansion to anyone who wanted it for their charitable events. Let's hope we can find justice for him. Thanks for watching, everyone. Almost next. Tuesday, we're back live.